This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mringa. And I'm Luc-Olivier Dumeblin. And our topic this week is... It is our fifth annual WWDC extravaganza. Sweet. Uh, but first, we have some follow-up. Yes, we do. So in episode 158, uh, Grand Spa Conspiracy Theorist at, I mentioned dates regarding the end of sending new ICE cars, so internal combustion engine cars, in Quebec and Canada. While uh, Quebec had an exact plan uh, that would be uh, around, that would be in the year 2035, it was never really clear what was be what would be the federal Canadian uh, commitment. Um, there was a, f- a date of 2040 floating around, but this week our current federal government, uh, driven by the Liberals, has announced that it would follow the same rules as Quebec, as the province of Quebec and other jurisdictions around the world, more or less saying 2035 will be the year where no uh, non-zero emission cars will be uh, sold. So the idea is new cars, new light duty trucks or pickup trucks, stuff like that sold in Canada will be zero emissions by 2035. So bringing the federal date more or less five years earlier than planned. Uh, so we were discussing part of this episode, some other jurisdiction, and I'm glad to... No, I shouldn't say I'm glad, but uh, I'm glad to see a more consistent story here in Canada because I'm sure it would have been a mess where some provinces, I guess, in the US, they'll have the same problem because of California, but having some part of a country not allow and then people like just cross the border or cross the yeah. the bridge to just go in let's say here in Ontario next to uh, get to know in Ottawa just to buy an, a new old car and stuff like that so being consistent I think is a good idea for those types of legislature so I'm glad to see that that's what's going to happen here that's it for my follow-up what about you Yannick Okay, let's start off with uh, some follow-up for the last episode, which was 163, doubling down on dad games. Mm. Uh, First of all, Housemark, the developer of Returnal, has been acquired by PlayStation Studios. So before they were only uh, contracted as a PlayStation exclusive, now uh, they are officially a PlayStation Studio. Interesting. So congratulations to them. Uh, Then the other big piece of follow-up, I guess, is uh, that uh, by the time you hear this, uh, I should read the exact quote. PSP commerce functionality will have retired. Uh, At time of recording, (laughs) this is going to be tomorrow. As we mentioned on the last episode, there was some ambiguity as to what exactly PSP commerce functionality meant. Um, And I've been trying to figure it out, and I have more information. Um, So... Namely, what we were curious about is, uh, does this mean that PSP software that is available for purchase on the PS3 and PS Vita stores would be taken offline? And officially, the answer is no. Uh, So one thing I did not know is that on May 20th, GameSpark, which is a major online gaming publication in Japan, uh, said that PS Vita and PS3 would be able to keep purchasing PSP games via their stores, via uh, information they had received from Sony. So nice. I did not know about this episode until this week, uh, th- this episode, this article until this week, which is why I didn't mention it on the episode. If I had known, I would have mentioned it. Then there was more confusing statements from uh, the head of PlayStation, Jim Ryan, last week, where he actually used that uh, wording, PSP commerce functionality being retired. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Nobody knows. Um, And then today, a friend of the show, Weimer, posted that... uh, there was a sort of FAQ page on the uh, PlayStation website called Important Notices Regarding PlayStation Products and Services. And uh, the content was updated since the last time we recorded. And it said, what about PSP content that is available for purchase on the PS3 and PS Vita stores? 
you'll still be able to purchase and play PSP content that is available on the PS3 and PS Vita stores. However, you'll no longer be able to make purchases via the in-game store for PSP content. So the important note uh, about this that we were also missing on the previous episode is you have not been able to buy PSP games on the PSP since 2016. So that was never... uh, It was already taken away, so they're not losing anything here. The only PSP commerce you could do on device was in-game purchases. Now that content is simply going away. Uh, So that is the only change that is happening. It is much less dire than I think a lot of people were thinking. Um, However, uh, just because the PSP store uh, is... Uh, not as bad as we thought does not mean that things are not worse than we thought elsewhere. Uh, so of course, PS Vita is a shit show. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's this tweet from a Japanese developer, Japanese indie developer called Pletsin Dispositif. Um, they they had a new game come out on June 24th. They got it right in uh, by the deadline, and they went to go to the Vita store to try and find their game, and it was not listed anywhere. And they inquired to Sony what the fuck was going on with uh, the Vita store not listing their game. And they noticed that it shows up in search results, but it doesn't show up in any of the browsable pages. And Sony's response was, oh, uh, those pages are all maintained manually and there is no one working on it anymore. So you should never expect your game to be there. (laughs) Oh, no, really? Oh, my goodness. So, uh, even if you somehow manage to squeeze your game in time for uh, the Vita store, uh, you're going to have to tell people to search for it because it doesn't even show up on the new releases tab, which I assumed was automatic, but no. Nope. <laughs> wow. It's funny that it is mentioned because I always felt that the video pages in the store were kind of weird, That meaning that I always felt that there was more content that they were showing. Uh, yeah, I think, and the weirdest part is, um, like, the, the Japanese PlayStation Store structure is completely different. It's a lot better uh, in Japan, sort of unsurprisingly. And you can browse the entire store by either a developer or alphabet, and there are lots of different category views and all of that stuff. So to think that that is manually maintained is awful, really. Um, right. <laughs> because I feel bad for the person who's doing that when it's pretty easy to just make a sequel query i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 wow okay so that's the sony saga for this week i don't know maybe we'll have uh more information on that uh in two weeks next up i want to talk about episode 161 burden of explicitness there is going to be some uh follow-up for this episode during this episode so i'm not going to go into all of it right now um but i it I did have a conversation with a friend of the show, Richard, about Microsoft Teams recently that gave me a good idea for some follow-up, which Hmm. is Microsoft Teams uh, changed a week ago from Angular to React in the latest version. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. And their justification was that they wanted to be consistent with the rest of the Office team who was also using React. And uh, I mean, Richard was basically arguing like that's not a good reason to do things. And I, I think there are some good reasons to be consistent with the rest of the office team and there are some bad reasons to adopting something just because it's popular um but this is not the the place to argue about that because that has almost nothing to do with the point i'm actually trying to make uh the the point that we eventually got to is um uh richard was saying it's a question of using the right tool for the job and angular is an app framework and react is a ui library um so angular is like 
an opinionated app framework for building rich client-side apps, and it has strong conventions and consistent methodology that can be applied at scale to build large-scale applications with big teams, uh, which makes sense because it's a Google thing. Uh, React is more about being a UI library for building reactive views, and you don't really care about the structure of the application because this is Facebook. Facebook moves fast and breaks shit, and uh, yeah, that pretty much fits. Uh, And in practical usage, yes, you can bolt on a bunch of React plugins that approximate stuff that Angular does to be a fuller app framework, but ultimately you're trying to force responsibilities onto a UI library that is not what it was designed for. So what the fuck does this have to do with Swift UI? Coco and UIKit feel like complete app frameworks in a way that Swift UI does not. And I didn't really realize that until I was talking about Angular and React and it sort of clicked. Uh, Swift UI was sort of designed two years ago as purely a UI library. And uh, especially starting last year, they started working backwards towards the app framework part. And no matter how much they try to make it good and stuff like that, it I think it sort of always has this connotation of being an afterthought instead of something that was integrally considered as part of the original design. And I thought that was a really interesting point to bring up that I did not necessarily think about when I was doing that episode. Uh, But it is another reason that I'm not really sold on SwiftUI. Hmm. Interesting. I think you bring up good points. Uh, Though... I don't want to make it into full discussion, but uh, I can see business reasons why they want to have like their web or hybrid app developer working in the same technology. Not saying it makes sense, but it makes somewhat sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, next up, I have some follow-up for episode 145, which was about V2... Uh, wait, no, wrong episode. Episode 145, Clan Wars, which was about uh, trains with Richard. Um, we'll get to the VTuber one next. Uh, so... Today, a great new video from RM Transit came out about how better convenience stores leads to less reliance on cars and more pedestrian and transit-friendly cities. I highly recommend this video. Mm. Um, This is definitely something I became much more aware of in my own neighborhood in the last year when I was trying to avoid going to the supermarket for no reason. Um, And I I think the video romanticizes Japanese grocery stores a little bit too much, but I mean, that's going to happen. (laughs) I I do the same thing. but uh, it's still a very good video. And one thing I think that we overlook a lot when we analyze our own convenience stores here in Canada is how often they tend to be tacked onto a gas station. Uh, Because I, at least it feels to me that uh, at least in Hulk, yeah, they greatly outnumber standalone convenience stores. And it also changes drastically the dynamics of where those convenience stores are located because they're trying to attract completely different audiences. Um, So yeah, I, I think it's a great video. You should go watch it. Yeah, you should have sent it to me because uh, I've heard through some uh, some people that, yeah, a uh, convenience store here that don't have gas to sell, uh, it's hard for them to survive, even to this day. Oh, I, I didn't know that, but that kind of also makes sense. <laughs> um, but I tweeted about it today because you're not on Twitter, so you didn't see it. Um, yes, yes, that's what it's Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now let's talk about VTubers. Uh, today is a very emotional day for a lot of VTuber fans uh, because Kiryu Koko from Hololife 4th Generation graduated this morning uh, at 7 a.m. Uh, I got up with my regular work alarm and watched the stream, uh, and it was pretty great. Uh, it is the first graduation of a Hololife member under uh, normal circumstances since the group began, and I just want to take some time to 
mention what she's done that's really special. Uh, Coco really pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable from idols produced by a mainstream Japanese entertainment company. Uh, if you look at the traditional idols like AKB48 and all of that stuff, they traditionally have a very chaste, innocent image like young schoolgirls and all of that stuff. And Coco is very much the opposite of that. Uh, like Especially in the last couple of weeks, she sort of had no limiter on because she knew she was going away. Uh, she was making jokes about fisting and masturbation. She was, Well, she, she has always opened her streams with good morning, motherfuckers. Uh, she's proved that idols can still be considered idols even if they remain true to themselves and they don't uh, stick to the curated image of what idols are. Even if their true selves are sometimes crude and troublemaking gremlins, uh, <laughs> she's half American, so she's actually fluent in English. And uh, because of that, she made VTubers, especially Japanese VTubers, accessible to a much wider audience. And she bridged the gap between Japanese and Western VTuber fans and paved the way for Hololive English's debut last summer. Uh, she incorporated shit posts and memes into her streams much more than anybody else. Uh, treating uh, shit posters as much as part of VTuber culture as uh, the original works themselves. Um, so yeah, she, she's a really big deal and has left a really big impact on the VTuber scene. Uh, videos of hers are going to continue to be available indefinitely on her channel, which is great because unfortunately Niji Sanji's uh, retirement uh, members have not necessarily decided to do that with theirs and entire VTubers have disappeared from the map because of that. Um, and paid memberships on YouTube will remain open for another three months. So if you want to go watch her member-only videos, you have three months to do so uh, before they are gone forever. Hmm. So I wish her uh, a ton of luck in whatever is next for her. Uh, and uh, if you have not checked out her channel, uh, I will put a link to her graduation stream uh, in the show notes. And you can go watch that or go check out her channel. It, it's kind of funny to me that it's called a, gradu a graduation moment. Oh, that they use the word graduation when they, they kind of you're being told to leave more or less or kind of you move to something else well, in this case i'm fairly sure she chose to leave herself um but yeah it's just the term that they've used historically in idol groups and i hmm. i think it's generally more because it's like it's a group of young schoolgirl ish girls so it makes it seem like they're moving on to the next thing in their life instead of quitting their job which is really what it is <laughs> okay last bit of follow-up but i think this is the one that uh we might be both most excited for oh okay Gran Turismo 4 online beta oh yeah <laughs> i didn't know what this review would do so sorry about okay that. I'll, I'll briefly explain it so nobody told me about this and i'm really mad because this has been out for <laughs> over a month oh uh, wow so uh Real OGs will know that uh, originally Gran Turismo 4 on the PS2 was supposed to have online play. Uh, they released an 8,000 copy limited beta of this uh, to test the online functionality, and it ended up being pulled at the last minute. Uh, all that chipped in uh, the PS2 version of Gran Turismo 4 was the LAN mode, which you can play online with tools like uh, uh, Xlink Kai and all of that stuff, but that is complicated and messy and not great. Um, but originally, it was supposed to have proper online play. Because of those 8,000 discs went out to be actual people, uh, they are out in the wild and people have ripped them. And the community has managed to combine a bunch of weird things that they've built up over uh, the last 20 years of PSU hacking to sort of make this come back to reality. So the first thing is uh, it has a DNAS check skip. So DNAS is like the online infrastructure for the PS2 that has long been taken offline. Now they just skip trying to connect to those servers because they don't exist anymore. They made 
brand new unofficial servers for Gran Turismo 4 online beta. <laughs> so uh, there are online servers. You can just go change a DNS server and it will connect to these unofficial fan servers. You can also play this on unmodded PlayStation 2s and PS3s. Because there is a bug in how video DVDs are read on these consoles that you can use to trick it into booting any game. Uh, What? Yeah. You can give it like a sort of corrupt DVD table of contents or something to that effect that tricks it into booting into PS2 mode. Uh, So you can just burn this DVD ISO onto a DVD, put it into an unmodded PlayStation 2, plug in an Ethernet cable, and you're playing... Gran Turismo 4 online and apparently this is this has like quite quite a little scene uh, building up around it I've seen numerous videos uh, and it's held up by like uh, the PlayStation 2 online revival group which has a bunch of uh, like they'll decide oh this Friday we'll all go play this old PS2 game that was taken offline years ago online on unofficial service uh, so there are regular events being held on Gran Turismo 4 so I think uh, I'm not equipped to actually try this right now but I am going to try to do something with this this summer because it sounds hype as fuck. And I've even heard people say that the netcode is better than Gran Turismo 5 and 6, which I, I have trouble believing, but I will try it and see. Hmm. So uh, a tease of something to come uh, later, probably. Uh, but uh, in case there's anyone else who is excited, I will put a uh, link in the show notes to a video that explains how to do all of this. Uh, and maybe you can go try it out. Which is the same video you sent me. Yes. Wow, okay, great. Yeah, you should have uh, emphasized that I should have watched this just before the show because the way you explain it sounds amazing. Yeah, it sounds pretty cool. I can't wait to just like go run laps. I mean, I already do this. I already go run laps on special stage route five over and over again, but now I can go do it online with other people. Nice. So that's it for my follow-up. Now we can move on to the main topic. Good. So as I mentioned in the introduction, it is our fifth annual WWC Extravaganza. So if it's our f- your first one uh, with us, uh, the gist of this is we talked a bit about uh, WWC itself. And mainly we will summarize uh, three sessions each this year. Uh, this session has become shorter, but Yannick and I were talking uh, just before starting to record and we kind of realized that yeah, maybe not in the end. So, uh, but yeah, so usually we summarize two sessions each. This, uh, this year we decided to go to three each. Uh, and the idea is those sessions are a bit off the beaten path, so we won't talk about like what's new in Swift, what's new in Swift UI. Uh, we would like to go through session that, in the end, we find interesting, but they might not be on your like watch list today. But that we should, uh, we want you to consider to add to your watch list, even if you listen to our extravaganza summarizing them. So before we go through our list of session, round robin style, I want to talk a bit about WDC this year because again, it's a special year again. So for 2021, uh, it was an online exclusive conference. So as with last year's, uh, the session are short and compact because I, th- I think it's it mainly came with the pre-recorded format. So you don't have to have a, a four to six track conference where you have like time slots of about 45 minutes to an hour and to be honest i really grown to like this format more than the older 45 to an hour one really yes huh because while they are like packed and concise i it i really enjoy that a i get all the information i need in 20 minutes yes i need more 
focus and attention to get that information but in the end that's what you were doing like by fast forwarding the thing so now people just talk fast so, no they don't talk fast they, they, they are like the f- recorded format is made in such a way that it's like bam 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 what i realized compared to 2019 is i felt it makes it easier to consume the content even after the conference is completed so let's say again i realized that even if i bookmarked like 100 sessions let's say throughout the year i have maybe 40 hours to dedicate to videos throughout my life if they're small if they're the sessions are smaller it does mean that i can go through way more content than i used to which is another aspect that i really enjoy because again from years and year i don't know the exact number i dedicate over a year to video the videos but i've seen it's more or less consistent and to be able to go through more content is really something i really enjoy because sometimes i look at my watch list or at my bookmarks and i kind of realize that oh i'm halfway there and it's like april or may so uh to help me on that um uh to help me with the cute i like the smaller format i'm curious to know to i'm curious to know why you don't like the shorter more concise format i think there's a lot of variability in the quality of these sessions i i think there are some extremely densely packed sessions and i i sort of have a section in all of my session notes that are sort of like my personal thoughts on both the session and the technology discussed in the session. And Mm -hmm. you're going to be hearing sort of which session I really hated and which I kind of loved. Uh, And the thing that I see with these sessions is that sometimes things that deserve maybe like a three minute to five minute video get padded out to 15 minutes. And then it just feels like a complete waste of everyone's time. Hmm. As you will see in my first session. <laughs> it, it is interesting because it's in my bookmark sessions and I haven't watched it yet, but there has been some notarization changes or I don't, there's a notarization session I want to watch and it's literally six minutes. Yeah. And last year, I think it was, uh, how do you Swift UI in Swift Playgrounds was a like three minute video and it was extremely good for that, but there are some things in these uh, in these sessions where I, I think the judgment of what should be a session and what should be, I mean, I'm, it's a little bit early to be complaining about this, but what should be a session and what should be a documentation page? Uh, mm, okay. There could be better judgment, but I, I'm going to save it for when I'm actually speaking about the session. So it's more obvious in context what I'm talking about. Okay, no, but, but uh, now that you make it clear that it while the content is concise but it's so concise that it could literally be written down versus video format i see your point yeah well Uh, just to give you an idea like there was one session where i like i was taking all the notes for these on my phone Hmm. uh, while i was watching it in real time and there were some sessions where i had to back up multiple times because it was so densely packed that i could not keep up in real time Mm -hmm. and the session that i did not like i did not have to rewind once because wow. there was nothing really to talk about and it was just a waste of my time. And I think like obviously I watched three sessions, right? It's not a great sample size. So and I tend to choose things that are intentionally like kind of weird and off the beaten path and I think maybe there's less uh there's less eyeballs on those to actually like uh make sure that they are hitting the level of density or quality hmm. that they need as opposed to like 
what's new in Swift UI? Like that's going to get a lot of views. So it's important that it actually hits all the spots. Whereas like, I'm I'm going to spoil it right now. Meet the location button. Oh, that's that one. Oh, okay. Interesting. And like no hard feelings to the, the presenter or the people who uh, worked on this technology. Like, I think it's a thing that's valid, but it, it's not a 15 minute topic in any <laughs> single way. It's not. Yeah, it's literally, well, we can talk about it later, but it's literally, yeah. there's a new button for location. Yay. Yeah. Use it. it, it it's privacy, fo- privacy focused. Yay. You can literally comment out a single line in your code and nothing else has to change. It's like, okay, but th- why is this a session? <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I see your point, but that's not my experience. And I guess you might have chosen, uh, and even last year, it was interesting to me how like tightly packed they were and also how well run they were. So, uh, I guess I now I don't need to watch meet the location button. It seems if it's you will get literally the entire content of that session in my thing. Good uh, to come back on the session and the for, the conference conf, uh, format. I don't want to make an assumption for the next year, uh, especially with our current world situation. But hopefully, uh, twenty twenty two makes it more viable for in person full-size events like uh, WWDC. But one thing that, while I kind of wish to dream to go back and really relive what I was able to do in the past few years, I hope that they won't revive the way the videos are. Because, again, I've been enjoying the shorter format. I might see that it won't fit well with just people going in a room and just sit and watch the screens like well, you can do that at home um so I, i'm eager to see what they'll do next year uh, how they'll adapt to possibly make it hybrid because the past two years and even this year where they kind of like they had time to prepare they knew they would make it online only uh it showed that it was more a conscious decision than over forced to do it because the world pandemic so i'm eager to see if they'll decide to be like fuck you people at home and go back to fully in person as they used to be but again even in 2019 2018 they, they were a pretty slowly maturely moving into an hybrid mode or even keep this hybrid mode uh going and see what they do but as you said like the the shorter videos are great for uh, for later in the year when you actually need to refer to information that's buried in these sessions like they're they're easier to consume later so it, i wouldn't actually be that surprised if they just apply a weird blanket rule where they say well anything that's below let's say 25 minutes doesn't happen on a stage in the convention but it happens in a video that is produced as these are right now mm-hmm. and then anything that is a meteor topic happens on stage at wwdc yeah i, I would like I, i'm sure there's an api somewhere that can if somebody has fetch all the json that use the developer.app uh and we can maybe graph all of those data because but looking at a lot of the sessions i've, I've been watching i didn't watch a lot but I might, maybe i watch about around 10 at this point uh a lot of them are below 30 minutes or even mm-hmm. 25 minutes. Uh, some yeah. of them are like 23, 24. They're close to the 25-minute mark. But a lot of them are like below 30 minutes. I'm really good to see. So I guess we can speculate for the next hour. We will never know. <laughs> we'll just need to wait a year and see. But uh, I hope that this doesn't die. And especially this year, they've added even another level. They, they made some tweaks to kind of recreate this ambience that you have when you attend a conference and one thing that i'd like to mention is apple has created digital launch based on four topics developer tools swift ui 
accessibility and machine learning. In the end, there were dedicated Slack workspace where Apple employees were delivering live Q&A session in the Slack room. So people could ask their question at dedicated moment through, throughout the week. And the way it was made is it was one of the presenter or one of the person that recorded an event part of those videos. And they would like to focus it on like today's session about developer tools. So the day that a lot of the, let's say, Xcode cloud session went out, there was a Q&A session with people replying in the uh, using the Slack thread feature and then you post a question via bot. And it was, uh, that part was really well run. I was part of the developer tools and accessibility ones. Uh, didn't look at the what, Swift UI, though I could have joined. I don't know, don't recall why. I don't care about machine learning, sorry. Uh, but I felt it was really well run as a session. Uh, one thing that was, not a bit sad, but I, I expect why Apple did that. But I think like Friday at five, the session, the, the digital launch, they just died and disappeared from Slack. So you would be automatically logged out. And then there was no way to see this content. Uh, but again, people have assumed that Apple would do that. So people have built archives and I've included a link <laughs> in the show notes to one called WWDC 21 launches archive of ask questions during uh the WDC 21 launches so it's on uh, github as usual um, one thing that i really enjoy about those digital sessions is again uh sadly that this year i was quite busy for work during that dub dub uh so it was a great way for me to not since i was not able to watch videos as much as i like during the week it was fun just for me to keep on the the common questions people were asking and see apple's response and also it I realized after watching a couple of videos related to this, the Q&A session that I missed in the end that people were also asking questions that were not presented in the content. So of course, uh, that also had its benefit of learning or uh, making me catch up on certain topics and also learn even more than I would have learned by just watching the session. Uh, yeah, the, se- the sessions. Uh, another new thing from this year was coding challenges so throughout the week Apple would post coding challenges some of them would highlight new APIs announced that day or for sure during the whole week and people could submit everything I don't think there wasn't anything you could win but they just were coding challenges kind of a hackathon style of um, yeah of of that so you would be able to go the same uh, on a different page on Apple's uh, WDC website where you could po- where you can download them and play with them. So I haven't tried them, but I've seen a couple of people post on Twitter that it were really fun. So I I seen it is still live. Uh, I'll I'll have the link to that challenge page in the show notes. So if you want to go through them today, they're still available and you can still go through them. And last but not least, uh, special events were a bit different. So throughout WDC, during the um, the lunch session, so when you were eating, you could also attend specific events where um, I recall watching one about uh, space, which was crazy. I forgot the exact details, but there was always kind of like just people being paid by Apple to come and just... Often there was like a Pixar session or whatever. That's true. Yes, there was a, oh, they made X movie. Uh, so those have stayed. I I don't recall if they were there last year. I think so. That was my memory, but I wasn't sure. Um, but one thing that was new is last year they didn't they didn't have the sporting events that usually be able to attend when you attend the conference. So usually I know uh, Nike uh, Nike has been sponsoring some of them in the past too. 
where just maybe like the, the conference day starts around 10 uh, but if you go like at 8 30 near the conference center you would have uh, like a run event or a cycling event uh, and those this year were moved to apple fitness plus not the app they were inside the developer app or, or the apple website but uh, they were sponsored quote-unquote by apple fitness plus and it's fun because most of the events were meditation events called Mindful Countdowns for Coding. So they were at the end of the year, of the day, and to, they were there to allow you to kind of like just chill out a bit after all those flowing energy and being excited about new things. Um, so for that fun, I felt it was really, again, a nice way to keep what makes WDC not only about the conference and the labs and blah, 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 but also about the networking, the community around it. And making sure that uh, that stays around, even in an online fashion. So that's my small summary about uh, the WDC changes for this year. And let's start with my first session. So it's session 10,084, Explore explore Ultra Wideband Based Car Keys. And of course, I'm sure you're not surprised if you're, again, new to uh, our uh, annual extravaganza for the WDC. I always select the car play and the car related (laughs) sessions. Are you really surprised? I'm sure you're not. So this session is also a follow-up of the session I covered last year called Introducing Car Keys. And so this year, they're mainly focusing on the ultra-wideband section. And it was funny because last year, they were mentioning that car keys could be NFC, where you have to tap your phone on the door handle or even in the dash to start the car. And they were saying, oh, you know, ultra-wideband is coming, but it's not ready yet, but we would like to do that. So... um, I think a bunch of cars from the BMW last year shipped with NFC and now they're slowly but surely moving to ultra wideband. That's the only car brand that I've heard that their new car supports it. Uh, they were a launch partner from uh, with Apple for this, but I looked even today after watching sessions like, which car manufacturer has implemented that? And it seems that it's mainly BMW at this point. Uh, funnily enough, though, uh, Apple is still part of the Car Connectivity Consortium that also contains uh, Audi, Volkswagen, uh, GM, and Hyundai. So possibly in the next few years, there's going to be more cars that supports that. But we'll see in the years to come because right now the only real examples we've seen are BMWs. So one of the big features introduced this year based on ultra wideband is passive entry so uh, as we've seen with other uh, uh, other technology based on the u1 chip or even on ultra wideband uh, this is able to more or less mimic what happens with your key fob today and it's kind of the funny thing is last year car key was like oh yes it's fun to have my key in my phone because i only have my phone but it was a really downgraded experience compared to your key fob because you leave it in especially with cars with keyless entry these days you leave it in your pocket and you can unlock the door you can start the car and all that fun stuff having to again tap your phone kind of reminded you a bit of like oh yes i need to pull in the key and unlock the car so a lot of these texts like passive n3 are literally about that Apple went into a lot of like comparison and combination of like what that what happened in the U1 chip and the secure limit. Like I won't go into those technical details because they're really aimed at manufacturers. So if you're a manufacturer and still listening to us, go watch this session because again, uh, some of the even some of the contents are like, okay, I'm not sure I understand, but sure. 
Uh, one thing I've learned though is that even with ultra wideband based car keys, uh, Bluetooth low energy is still used. Uh, the main reason it is used is because Apple is talking about some zones around the car and to kind of ignite or not ignite but to start some communication the first chip that will detect your phone or your apple watch would be the bluetooth low energy one so apple is describing more or less three zones the one the first one they call the welcome zone which will be for like just maybe starting the ec or starting to eat turning on the lights more or less making sure the car says hey i know you're coming near me you also have uh the closer zone that uh, has two ways so if you enter it it will be kind of an unlock zone that will be declared as an unlock zone of course when you're close to the car you can unlock the car and when you exit that close to the car zone it will be become the secure slash lock zone of course you leave it you want it the car uh to be uh secured before you leave so, uh, as I was saying, the uh, Bluetooth energy is used to first detect your phone. A communication is open to authenticate with your car. Also, it exchanges keys so that when you start having sessions with ultra wideband, that is used to locate you around the car and also see how you travel through the space. It's kind of funny because there was a lot of what we've seen with the um, the air tag. I was. I don't know why I was about to blank on the name. Where it detects you're going into that direction, so you're heading north, you're heading east. For sure, that still works, and the car is able to know where you are going around the car. So if you go, if you're arriving from the passenger door, it might just unlock the passenger door, for example, or it might unlock the trunk if you're at the at the rear of the car. Of course, uh, ultra wideband is precise enough to detect whether you are inside or outside the car which is really important to know when you should be able to start the car or not even so that's kind of the three zones the welcome zone the secure zone and then the interior zone uh, and uh, depending of the, where you are located with your device uh, some features become able or ina- unable uh, able uh, enable or disable wow as with express cards uh, or previously known as Express Transit, when we talk in Great Lands into uh, the transiting system, uh, all those features are still available when your phone is quote-unquote dead. Of course, Apple never say that the phone is dead when it shows you the battery uh, screen. It call it power reserve mode. So I think in the session they were saying, oh, you're going on a trail and then you lose you you don't have enough battery. You can still come back in your car and then charge it. And then it allows you to uh, unlock your car. You know, they only changed the wording of uh, power reserve mode after <laughs> Express Transit became a thing. Before it was just dead, but now, oh, we can't <laughs> call it dead because you can technically do something with it. Right, right. So, yeah, I, I'm, I, I recall this and I was surprised that it was naming it again power reserve mode. So the second feature, so again, first feature, passive entry. Second feature, it's remote keyless entry controls. So this is literally the software equivalent of buttons on a physical key fob. Uh, so those are literally when you're farther away from the car so that you're not in uh, UWB range, but you might still be in Bluetooth LE range because that's literally how it communicates. It's not RFID or all the other technologies that current car fob do. So it allows you to have the typical features present on a key fob, so lock-unlock, opening the trunks, or even with maybe more recent, I would say even more uh, 
yeah, I've seen gas power cars. I was about to say electric cars, but no, but I've seen like, I think it's the BMW 7 series that have more keys to start the AC so it can cool down the car when you get close and stuff like that. Or it also has a screen to give you state about like gas range or if it was an electric car, battery range. And all of these features are now supported in car key. Uh, one thing to note is that Yes, they are based on BLE, but also they have standardized via the uh, via CCC, which I mean the Car Connectivity Consortium. I don't want to repeat that ever again, so I'll call it CCC from now on. Uh, so all of these remote keyless entry controls, they've been standardized, so they want car manufacturers that when you support them, then you support them part of a consortium and you don't need to implement it 10,000 times. Um, the funny thing though is that when you use your phone just like in your pocket those features are not available right you really need to pull out your phone open the wallet app and then go see your car key in that UI and that's where those settings not those settings those controls are stored so it's again they're pulling it closer to your car key and kind of trying to recreate this equivalent of a key fob last but not least is personalized settings um again the the theme of recreating what happens on a key fob is really the, this year's theme for car key so literally now your car can know okay uh yannick's like yannick let's say yannick and i share a, a car i don't know why but let's say that we do and when i enter the car from the driver's seat on the driver's side my seat will move back or move forward and my steering wheel will move for it to be at the exact position I like it to be. Um, if Yannick comes in and then he enters the, on the driving side, then the seat will move again for to allow him to be comfortable the way he has set it. So you've seen that all those new functionality for car keys are really about replicating what people already have. And I it, that makes sense because while car key is nice, like you don't have to have your fob for a lot of people. And especially we, as, as I said, those came, those first came to BMW. There's a lot of feature you would have to say, Oh no, I cannot. I don't, if I use car keys, that won't happen. Like I lose the access to unlock and uh, lock the car remotely. Or when I say remotely, maybe more like five meters away from my car. Um, or when I get in, my seat moves correctly because it knows it's me uh, that is entering. So all of these functionality is to bring back and get the benefit of what car key is. You can share your keys easily by sending a text message and all that fun stuff, but also keep the buttons, keep the personalized settings the way you would like. And last but not least, the session concluded, and there was maybe about 10 minutes about how automaker can implement car keys. Uh, the presenter talked about the transceiver position and its physical attributes. <laughs> and I was like, okay. You know when you were saying earlier in the intro, like, oh yes, there's moments where I was able to keep up on the notes watching live versus I had to stop. So at the first two thirds of the, the session, I have to take, stop, take some notes. But in that section, I was like, okay, no, I'm not taking notes for that. If you're a car manufacturer, I'm sure this session, even when they, this part is more tailored for people implementing that in cars, you have access to more documentation through the MFI program and even from CCC. Um, so they're more or less giving you like, okay, you need to 
define the number of sensors you have but for sure the more sensors you have the better precision you have but it might be too expensive so you have to find a good press cost to benefit ratio for you um you need to make position then iron the car so they have more range and things like that so it's about eight minutes at the end for sure i invite you to watch that so all in all i think again this year last year they kind of said yes you can have your car your key we can have a standard way to into to bring keys to your phone, not having like a Tesla app and a BMW app. Like they can all be through wallet and even shared with CCC. So if let's say I think uh, if I recall correctly, Andrew, uh, Google is part of CCC, so they could use the same technology for Android too. This year, the announcements are really about no, no, no. Like this is a nice gadget to have on your phone, but now you can really leave your fob at home, put it in a drawer forget about it and just use your phone and it will have the exact same feature the same benefits for you as a car driver than if you would have your phone i think the main downside to that is it's nice but unlike carplay you cannot retrofit it in your current car so it does mean you need to buy a new car and right now needs to be a bmw because only <laughs> them supports that and that's I don't think it's going to be feasible to replace the computers in your car come the same way you can replace your infotainment system to have, to bring one that is CarPlay compatible. So I expect it's going to be nice in five years if you buy a new car. And that's yeah. where, while I'm being excited about this new deck, I kind of feel a bit not sad but kind of like okay it's a nice future that we might never live in because who knows if it will really be implemented by car manufacturer that might be a running theme tonight oh interesting <laughs> but yeah so i hope that maybe in four or five years i'll be able to enjoy that not with my own car but at least to experience this maybe i go test drive a car just for the sake of test driving that uh, i think last year uh john voris at um uh, Max Stories had to rent a BMW just to try to report on this. I kind of remember some story from Max Stories yeah, about I that. Yeah, I think I saw that. So, yeah, maybe I'll try to do that too to experience this. Uh, but, yeah, so that might be, like, we, it took a couple of years for CarPlay to be, like, present on every new car or even, even uh, on, like, third-party uh, infotainment system you could buy off the shelf. Uh, I don't think that will happen for sure. Uh, I'm eager to see if people will find a way to act and retrofit those types of technology, but I think they are so deep in your car that they need kind of a manufacturer level of attention. And yeah, for that, you'll need a new car because manufacturer wants to sell a new car. The bright side is if there's a slow rollout, it gives them time to put it in the watch because I, I'm i of the belief that all the wallet stuff is like 10 times better if you can just get it on the watch instead of the phone. It is on the watch. What, the watch is ultra wide, man? Yes. Since when? I don't know, but they've mentioned iPhone and I, uh, iPhone and Apple Watch. I'm going to go look it up. <laughs> so I didn't look, but they, I recall at one time they said, oh, if your Apple Watch is UWB, I wouldn't be surprised that the Series 6 is, but... If it is, I completely missed it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that. So that is it for my first session about... Ex the ultra wideband base car keys so yannick what's your first session and do you have the information about the apple watch 
No, I, I made okay. a bunch of bad search terms. No so way. I'll let you talk about your session and I'll go look into that. That sounds good. So my first session, unsurprisingly, is meet the location button. Um, it starts with a bit of a lie. Well, okay, it's not really a lie. <laughs> so they open it by saying... <laughs> They open it by saying, uh, this year we have two new features for location-based apps to reduce the amount of nagging that we have for location permissions. And they mention region-based user notifications and location buttons. So then they sort of try to start and introduce region-based user notifications. The joke here is they only mention it for two sentences and then they never mention it ever again for the rest of the session. Wow. So... Region-based user notifications are a way to do local geofence notifications without requiring always-on location permissions. This is of big interest to me because I used to have an application that did region-based geofence notifications that were not using this system a long time ago. Uh, it was an app that uh, checked your Pasali balance when you went to or left the arcade, uh, which was only useful if you were in Japan, but it is a thing I developed nonetheless. And it had a really cool geofencing UI, and I was super interested in finding out more about this feature. Uh, then they say, go watch what's new in watchOS. Now that's weird because I watched what's new in watchOS before I watched this, and I didn't even remember that they had talked about it in that session, <laughs> which means it must not have gotten that much love in that session either. So that was kind of weird, and it really set the tone for this weird-ass session. Then they just, like, tossed that to the side, and they're like, cool, okay, let's talk about location buttons, which is ostensibly what this session is named after. Uh, so they start by going into the, the state of location authorization today. Basically, the permission dialogue that you're faced with uh, when you ask for location authorization today provides three different options. There is allow once, allow while using the app, and don't allow. And uh, what they found is that there has actually been really great adoption of allow once since it's became uh, available. And it's great for things like, uh, let's say you've got an application for like a drugstore and you want to find the closest drugstore. You don't necessarily want to uh, allow the application to see your location all the time you're using the drugstore app. You just want to know to give it the location once when you're looking for the nearest drugstore. So allow once is great for that. Uh, but the problem is it loses its permission as soon as the app enters the background. And if location is still relevant to what you're doing upon returning to the app, the app, uh, the user is going to be presented with another prompt that asks them if they want to allow once. Uh, and what Apple has noticed is that, uh, oft this happens often enough that it nags users to the point that they just choose don't allow because they want peace and quiet when they reopen the app. Uh, so, the problem is uh, if you're a developer or even a power user, you know what happens after that is uh, you have to go deep into settings to actually try and re-enable uh, your app's authorization status to do that. And communicating that to non-technical users can be challenging. Uh, so this year, they wanted to have something in the OS that would reduce that pain point. And the answer to this problem is the location button control. Uh, so in UIKit, this is called CL location button. And in SwiftUI, it's just called location button. It is available on iOS, watchOS, and Mac Catalyst. Apparently not on the Mac, who, because who does location shit on the Mac, I guess? It is a standard UI control with all of the usual UI control bells and whistles. Um, it can primarily be customized through icon, label, uh, corner radius, and font size. And... It is functionally equivalent to having a traditional UI button, presenting the prompt, and having the user click allow once. It just happens automatically when you press it instead. 
if you have an existing current button, uh, current location button in your app uh, that is just a regular UI button instance, you can just replace the UI button class name with CL location button or location button if you're in Swift UI. And then the only thing you need to do, as I mentioned earlier, is you comment out one line of code and you no longer need to call a request when in use authorization because that is done automatically by the button now and everything else should just continue to work as is. Um, so that's the meat of this session. <laughs> there is technical information that is uh, legitimately important to know. However, it is no way 15 minutes of content. Um, so there are restrictions as to how you can customize this button. Uh, the buttons need to conform to a set of rules in order for the intent of the button to remain clear to the user. Because Apple wants to avoid scenarios where users are tricked into pressing disguised location buttons to share their locations unknowingly. They've only revealed three rules uh, so far. They've said uh, size deemed inappropriate is one of them. Alpha insufficient, so you can't make it semi-transparent or too semi-transparent, I guess. Uh, not enough contrast between the location glyph and the button's background color. If your app has any offending restrictions, they'll show up in your debug log. Or if you're using Interface Builder and your view has a location button in it, it'll show up in the issue navigator. Um, then they're sort of like, okay, if I'm migrating an app that already has authorization status, what does this mean for my app? Well, it's equivalent to the old allow once authorization, uh, which is now being sort of renamed to when I share, uh, because you're explicitly, when you're pressing the button, you're explicitly allowing once, which is considered sharing your location with the app. Um, if you're starting with fresh authorization status, uh, the first time you press a location button, it's going to bring up a one-time prompt saying that, from now on, when you press this kind of button, the location will be shared with the app uh, because you explicitly requested to do so. Uh, if your app already has the while using the app permission, nothing changes because your status was already greater than the one that was granted by this button. So it just goes on right through. And if your user got tired of your app asking if you wanted to share shit and they revoked your app's location authorization, uh, using a location button gives you a reset opportunity where it says, oh, Ooh. this is a location button. Uh, do you want to change the uh, authorization status of this application so that when you press location buttons, it shares your location and you're okay with that? Uh, so th that is like the the one point I think they should have emphasized is that th this is a way to get people to actually reapprove things on your app uh, without having to communicate a giant FAQ of how to get into settings to actually do it uh, to them. So that is the entire content of the session. I think that was less than 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was kind of a waste of time. Uh, it felt really padded out. It felt really slow paced, maybe because they felt like they had to fill more than 10 minutes of time. I don't really know how these are are planned out all of this to me should be a documentation page not a session uh it, like all of this information is good stuff that is good to know but it is hard to justify it time-wise when it is like it's reference information it is not session information i don't know how to describe it um and like the, my only theory for how this session happened is they don't know how to make it fit into the documentation structure because everything at Apple is so focused on, or at least recently has been so focused on this is a class reference and here are all the methods on the class and here are all the things on the class. And this is stuff that is about how this control turned out to be designed more so than it is about 
the technical details of how you use specific methods and uh, properties of an object of this class. And maybe Apple just doesn't know how to make that fit into their documentation structure and they delegate that role to WWDC sessions, but I think they make bad WWDC sessions when they do that. Hmm. I understand your point, but I'm really excited about this button. I, I think it Oh, yeah, mean, the, the it, button's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was quite curious to know what time. I'm a bit sad that the session is meh because uh, I think it will solve a lot of, like, I just wanted to do a quick, like, uh, location and it's complex and I just want, I just want to get it. That's it. And it's that's a, the one thing that nice. worries me is there are going to be people who are going to try to game this into accidentally making people. Uh, share their locations and i i'm happy at least that apple did have uh some prevention in place to try and have sense go into the buttons but like when right. they were listing like oh you can customize the button with all of these different attributes i was like oh shit you just opened <laughs> the floodgates um so now it's going to be fun to see if anyone actually manages to get around those rules because that is that is always the most fun thing about apple is seeing who gets around the restrictions one thing you haven't mentioned is how does those customization work? Is that typical as UI button yeah, customization? Yeah, it's just the usual UI button shit. Okay, I asked that because there was another session I haven't watched and it's not part of my list, but it's about the new customization system for UI buttons, which is way more powerful than it used to be. Yeah, I've heard about that, but I have not watched it. <laughs> hmm. So, okay. So I guess I'll watch those two kind of closely related because I really want to see if they kind of cross fit the, like if I can understand they want to limit the customization and not allow you to go full in like uh, you are in the new system. But I believe they uh, actually named that session in the thing as like, if you want more information about customizing buttons, go to this hmm. thing. But I was like, not yet aware that the system had changed. Uh, so I hadn't noted it down, but yeah. So on to your next session? Yes. So my next session is session uh, 10,122, bring accessibility to charts in your app. And I've always kind of been interested to build a native app full of charts. I never got the opportunity to do so, whether <laughs> professionally or personally, uh, but it kind of looks fun. So it's weird. Like we had a couple of opportunities at work where we maybe possibly dab into this and one of my my colleague and i were like oh my god it's fun i i don't know it felt to me that's a boring a boring problem to solve but well it, it ties into one of my old wwc sessions that we talked about which was when CareKit had an entire graphing right. library in there for some reason <laughs> yes yes i remember talking to you about that so i kind of remembered all of that and also, I always like compare it with what current apps building like build charts uh, or use of this technology. And from what I've seen and heard, those types of apps usually are built using web technologies because they offer more flexibility and more possibly future opportunities for what's presented to the user. Or people know the JavaScript library to draw charts that everybody possibly. uses and they're lazy. <laughs> Possibly, but again, uh, I always felt that again it was a it was a fun it could have been a fun uh, problem to solve with native technologies because again, data you might receive a lot of data they don't want to change and for kind of a reporting or analysis app it seems pretty interesting. So hopefully one day I'll be able to do that. And now uh, with this session in mind, it will 
iOS 15 will, and macOS 12 will bring new te- new ways to show your data to users that can see. Because the main benefit for chart is it allows you to consume a sizable chunk of data quickly. Because you see, like, the best example they've got is the, uh, the stock apps. Where you can see the stock price and it's like, oh yeah, it, it went up and down and blah, blah, blah. So what Apple has done is to use... Uh, audio feedback to give you trending data uh, and they call this audiograph and that is based uh, that is part of the voice over router so the way they do that is they transform the data you present on screen with audio tone so uh, a best example is if we have a, a, a x and y graph that is linear from like x equal x uh, y equal x or one equal one and two so i would do like ooh, like this like those sounds um, i won't imitate any more sounds for tonight but just to give you a perspective so if it's kind of a, a bell curve it would do ooh. if it spikes up it's a stonks no it doesn't do stonks sounds damn it literally if we give if, if i give you a linear graph the higher your points your data points goes the higher the frequency is and the lower the data the your data points are the lower the frequency is and even with the clouds of points they they, they use music notes to bring that it's really amazing how they translated something quite visual to audio for visually impaired users to be able to just get the same quickness like the same comprehension of the data with audio so i was really really in awe of the way they've built that and of course throughout the session apple give you tips and tricks to improve to provide the data uh, to the new uh, accessibility api to do so and also gives you tips and tricks to improve your charts in your app a couple of examples of that so to for people that have uh, impaired vision, so they still see or low vision, um, there's a couple of tips and tricks that you need to not forget about. And the first one is to use eye contrast colors. So let's say you have two data sets. Don't use two shades of gray for the bold bars. Uh, or even like don't use, let's say, green or red because they are one type. Like green and red is one time, uh, one pop. I think it's a, they said it's the most... Uh, the main type of color blindness that people have com- uh, mixing, not not able to differentiate red and green. Uh, the other one too is uh, yellow and blue. And it's funny because when they were showing us, because again, they were tweaking the colors to for visually, pa- uh, not impaired, visually uh, able people to see what visually impaired people uh, with color blindness are seeing it's kind of two shades of orange it reminded me of uh, again a car thing so one of my favorite car youtuber uh, matt farah from the smoking tire as i think he has uh red and green uh, color blindness so i'm not sure it might be another one but yeah some form of color blindness and one day was explaining about the current loaner right i forgot exact the exact model but i know it was a, a fiat chrysler product and he was like going through the GPS and the GPS. So the lines for the roads and the line for your main road that you need to follow were I think green and red. Let's say that the, the main road was green and the other one was red. And he was like, I'm looking at the GPS and I don't know where I need to go. 
so uh, the fact that they brought it up and even showed the example reminded me this example where it is important to think about that because in the case of a GPS, you might get lost in a in the case of chart, you might lose money because if you don't realize that your stock went down, like because uh, it, like because the chart only rely on color to give you data about money, that might be problematic. So on top of that, they also say like, don't only rely on color. You can rely on shapes too because for people that don't perceive color at all, they will just see shades of gray. So uh, let's say if you have a line with squares and a line with uh, excuse me, align with circles, you know which data sets you're comparing to. And I don't know if it's still true, but that's one of the things I've heard about the traffic lights, which some of them have formed. So for people that cannot perceive color, they can say, okay, the red is a square. So I see the square, it means I cannot go. So it was, it sounds like trivial um, reminders that you might have heard from design sessions, stuff like that. But the fact that Apple bring this up again, means that people don't do it so that you need to do it so that you can have a wider you can reach a wider audience a uh, part of the visual effect that apple was uh, providing is funny because they mentioned that oh yeah you need to make sure that when the user use reduce transparency that your app adapt to it i'm like reduce transparency you know they we had a way before where the setting didn't exist because our app mobile designs was not creating a problem where people want to reduce transparency on. They just didn't use transparency. I love transparency, yes, but I understand that it is creating an accessibility problem by having more transparency in our UIs. So it was kind of funny that they reminded that, like, you know, you can don't forget to adapt your app and uh, kind of have my moment while watching the sessions. Like, yeah, but if you didn't use transparency, yes. Frequently you do, you wouldn't have that problem. Welcome to the Scott Forstall uh, Lovers Club. I know you would like that. (laughs) So now they 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 move to uh, they they move to how you would make your chart uh, accessibility container as a group. You attach it to a label to it. You define your elements, and that's like I won't go through exactly all the details because uh, like. Literally, you can copy the code and look at the code. But it was really interesting to see how you get your, let's say, your chart view. And you the way you provided data, you can, just by overriding a couple of properties, reusing the same data sets and massaging it to create accessibility elements, Apple is able to create a brand new UI to show the exact same chart to have a play button that does the fre- the sound frequency to show the trends. Also have a UI on top of the play button, which visually shows the graph, but that is a scrubber the same way that if you were playing a movie and you move the scrubber, but this one you scrub and it plays the sound. And let's say like the example the, the presenter was saying is we should try to find the IS value. I think it was, uh, they were talking about uh, number of coffee uh, drank versus line of code produced by a developer. And yeah, it was, it was a, it's a fake example. People don't freak out. People don't drink 12 coffee cups uh, coffee cups a day here. Like, yeah, uh, we knew. Uh, but he moves his thumb or finger on the screen. So it does the poo. And then he finds the IS point and then stops. And voiceover starts reading like, okay, yeah, so we are at the three coffee today produce 
10 lines of code, things like that. And in that same UI, so the person can scrub to process more carefully the data sets, just not hearing the sound, and can get via that uh, audio cues. And again, looking at the number of lines of code to build that is mind-boggling because it's a handful of line of code which gives you a brand new UI that makes your app even more accessible to a wider audience. And for that, it's like kind of not crazy, but I would say it shows how Apple values making app experiences accessible and giving the tools to developers uh, to build that. And by doing so, I think... did I write? No, I didn't write the number of lines, but I think I'm looking here at... You have, yes, so you need to override your view to conform to a specific protocol. You need to override accessibility container type one, the accessibility label two, uh, accessibility element three, and then return uh, uh, tons of accessibility elements. And that makes your chart readable via voiceover. So that is, let's say you have a small data set. For sure, if you have a big data set, Apple suggests that you don't use voiceover, but you'd use audiograph. And for audiograph, it's more or less, you need to confirm to a new protocol called AX chart from the accessibility uh, framework. And then its main requirement is to over, uh, to implement a property called accessibility chart descriptor which is an object that is called UI Accessibility Chart Descriptor. You create the instance with accesses, accesses, Y accesses, all the data sets, you return it, and then you have this rich UI that could contain, let's say, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of points that you won't have, like, voiceover read one by one because you'll be stuck on that screen for a long time if you make voiceover read, like, 10,000 points. So they really compare the two approach while having, like, let's say, maybe... 10 bars, especially for the coffee, it was, I think they went from 1 to 12. So it's easy to make voiceover read one by one because it's easy to do the, the swipe gesture for voiceover to read the first bar, the second bar, the third bar. But if it's more like uh, there are other examples where they showed audiograph where it was the um, the birth rate through from 1900 to 2000, like there's a thousand there's a thousand points because there's a thousand years of data there. So that is where Audiograph, which is custom, not custom UI, but it's own defined UI that uh, a blind user can bring up using the voiceover router makes more sense. So that's more or less wraps it up about how to make your chart more accessible. I, in the end, was way uh, one fabricated about the technology itself and two again as with a lot of accessibility elements in ios it's a couple of lines of code and it works magically so again new addition on ios 15 and mac os 12 for making your chart more accessible i have a trick question Uh (laughs) uh-oh i think i know the answer to this already but you mentioned at the start of this session that uh, a lot of applications implement their graphs with web views Mm -hmm. and everything you described there was for native ui graphs so i'm guessing they don't have a story for web views right uh they haven't mentioned zero thing about that and the introduction about web views is just me being nerdy about okay graphs and native not about the session itself 
because like if your if your web view is literally just like uh graph.js or whatever library that you found uh and it's just that rendered into a web view like i can see you making a wrapper view that could easily just do this and it would be great for that scenario but hmm. if the entire app is built as right. a web view then it gets trickier because you could have multiple graphs on the same page you could That's true. Just and that sounds... randomly do stuff on the server that isn't in your app. I don't know. And I, I mean, yeah, that's the yeah. perils of web development. But I, okay, I, I was just curious if they had a solution no, for that. They have nothing about that. And also, by the way, I had time to load the page. Uh, yeah, just I, before we did the transition. Thing? Yes. So the yeah. series, the series six does have a U1 chip, and I have yep. the uh, SE comparison, and it does not. Right, so really I, I found it while you were talking earlier and I was going to jump in, but you found it as well, so that's cool. Yeah, I just forgot to do it uh, during our uh, our segue to my session. So now let's move to your second session. Okay, this one's going to be a banger though. Ooh. S- session number two is add support for Matter in your smart, f- smart home app. Um, but, but before I jump into the contents of the session itself, I need to add context that they did not put in the session, which I was surprised by. Um, so previously on this show, we've talked about connected home over IP. Uh, we called it CHOIP, but apparently the official name was CHIP all along. Uh, <laughs> it is a project that Apple, Amazon, Google, and other smart home vendors, uh, known as the uh, Connectivity Standards Alliance, uh, decided to create uh, for smart home devices. On May 11th of this year, they actually decided that CHIP is going to be rebranded to Matter. Um, for all intents and purposes, like all the marketing materials and all of that stuff are rebranded to matter. However, the framework is still called chip. Uh, so if I mention chip, I, I mean the framework that is still called that. Um, and in terms of the progress, uh, behind matter and chip, uh, from what I understand, the protocol spec is pretty much finished. The implementation is about two thirds of the way complete and, uh, the part that doesn't really seem to be there right now is all of the administrative processes around issuing vendor and product IDs to companies that want to manufacture products with matter. But the technology and like the, the spec is there and the software is very much underway. Um, so knowing that, you should probably not expect to see matter devices on store shelves within the next year. Uh, and it's important for you to temper your hype going into this session knowing that. <laughs> because you're very quickly going to be disappointed if you expect this this fall. Um, so now we can go to the session proper. Um, so yeah, Matter. It's a new standard for smart home devices. Uh, the goal is to take what all of these vendors have learned over the last few years that smart, phone, smart home tech has really boomed and do it in a more interoperable way, which sounds like a good idea. Um, at a high level, and we will uh, revisit this a little bit later, it seems to be very inspired by HAP, which is the uh, protocol used by HomeKit. No surprise there, really. When Apple is involved, they tend to uh, drive the drive the ship pretty much. Um, so the benefits that they laid out for uh, Matter are that supporting one protocol simplifies the development process of smart home apps and devices. I agree. Uh, it simplifies the customer experience across vendors due to interoperability. I agree. I'm not sure that they've convinced me that this is going to be true. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, and having one universal protocol means that you can build new homes with built-in smart home accessories and no worry that they won't be compatible. 
again to be proven <laughs> so matter support is going to be available as a developer preview in ios 15 and tvOS 15 uh, it's only going to be available on devices with a developer profile running those os's if you want to uh, control matter accessories via HomeKit with one of these devices you will need a home hub which is either a home pod an apple tv or they don't list the iPad anymore, but previously iPads were considered home hubs if you left them at home. So I'm not sure what the deal is there, but I think there's still home hubs. I do wonder if it's because they don't have the chip, right? Because if you recall the HomePod Mini, the big thing recently was, oh my God, it has a matter chip and everybody's freaking out. Uh, thread radio, it's not the same. Thread, yes, sorry, but I wouldn't be surprised that that is related. I am not convinced by that. Huh, okay. Um, Interesting. They don't mention it at all, by the way, in this oh, really? session. So, yeah. Oh. Um, as I mentioned, uh, no vendor IDs and product IDs are being issued yet. So to try any kind of device shit, uh, you're going to need to use sample uh, vendor and product IDs that are going to be provided for the supported accessory types. And basically, the context that I'm setting here is... This is going to be great this year if you're an accessory vendor that's trying to test your accessories uh, because now you have a reference implementation to test against. But otherwise, like you're going to see absolutely no use of this in the near future. So let's start by talking about the HomeKit stack. When we think about HomeKit, we are actually thinking about something that is a stack made up of four layers. And if we look at the current day stack uh, from the bottom up, uh, there's the accessory layer, which is uh, the hardware protocol that the uh, accessories actually speak. And this, uh, in HomeKit's case, is HAP, uh, which I believe is Home Accessory Protocol. Then there's the communication layer. So this is the framework on the side of the phone that uh, interprets the communication of this protocol. So in this case, it's pretty simple. It's called HAP.Framework. Not very complicated. Then there's the organizational layer. And this is, okay, I have a bunch of devices. Now I need to organize these into rooms and homes. I need to do something with this. This is where HomeKit.Framework comes in. And strictly speaking, this is all that HomeKit actually is. It is a way to take these hardware devices that speak protocols and organize them in a way that makes sense for our brains to handle. And then there's the app layer. So this includes the Apple Home app. Uh, but it can also include other third-party apps. Like uh, some people said the Home app sucks. So I'm going to use Home Plus, which is a third-party app that basically tries to do the Home app that doesn't suck. Uh, there are a bunch of other apps that try to integrate with HomeKit so you can do stuff. Uh, I use an automation app that lets me do a bunch of weird HomeKit stuff, even though I don't have HomeKit devices. Uh, all of these sit on the app layer, and they are effectively peers because they are all sitting on top of the same HomeKit framework. Although I assume that Apple Home can probably call some private APIs here and there. In a world where matter exists, only two of these layers actually change. So the accessory layer becomes the matter protocol. So instead of speaking HAP, you speak matter. And the communication layer becomes chip.framework. And you can have uh, matter and hap and uh, hap.framework and chip.framework run in parallel. And that is literally what they are doing in this uh, developer preview, is they just have HomeKit sitting on top of two parallel stacks uh, for the different classes of devices. Um, 
I do also want to add here in case you get confused if you go look into Matter itself. Matter has its own seven-layer networking model that is very similar to the OSI model, if you're familiar with that, uh, but specific to Internet of Things networking. Uh, That model is not relevant at all to anything discussed in the session, uh, but it has nothing to do with the HomeKit stack that I'm discussing right now. What this uh, HomeKit layer and the way that they've managed to fit Matter into it Uh, means is that for people who are writing the apps of the app layer, uh, you're just writing apps against HomeKit and HomeKit takes care of all this shit for you. So you don't actually need to change any code in your app. Uh, Whether it means initiating accessory setup, uh, controlling accessories or configuring accessories, remote access, notifications, scenes and automations, all of that stuff is stuff that is handled by HomeKit and therefore it is transparent to you whether the device is Matter or HAP. It should just work. Again, once Matter actually ships for real on iOS and is enabled for everyone. Uh, However, Matter support is not entirely feature complete on iOS right now. Uh, There are accessory types that have yet to be supported and uh, there is this entire system uh, called the custom features system where uh, device manufacturers can sort of define extra flags and Uh, settings that can be set on their features if something for some reason is out of spec Uh, and this is currently only supported for hap devices but it will be coming to matter later Um, so that sort of summarizes what's going on at the app layer if you're a home automation app like you don't even really have to think about matter it will just happen to you when it's time great Uh, let's move another layer up and talk about home hubs specifically support for other smart home hubs. So today HomeKit only supports a single digit amount of home hubs, namely Apple devices. Uh, These are HomePods, Apple TVs, and iPads. In a post-Matter world, HomeKit will allow you to pair Matter accessories with non-Apple home hubs. This is being done with a new type of app extension. It's called the HM Chip Service Request Handler. Um... And basically, if you have a home hub like uh, Echo Plus or whatever, uh, you could build a home hub app that has this kind of extension and can feed metadata to the HomeKit pairing process to allow you to pair Matter devices to uh, the Echo Plus. Um, So the first thing that uh, you have to implement with this uh, extension is... Uh, you have to initiate the setup with the topology. So you create this object called HM Chip Service Topology, which basically says, hey, this is my worldview as the uh, home hub of the homes I manage. It can be multiple. Uh, if it is multiple, it will ask you which home you want to pair with. Uh, here are the rooms in the... Well, actually, no, the rooms are separate. But th- there is a topology with some level of like this is the hub in this home, this is the hub in this home, and some other sort of metadata about the devices in those homes that you pass in the topology object. If that goes through, uh, you get to the next thing, which is the pair accessory request response. This is with the pair accessory method on the extension. This basically gives you the information about uh, the data that was scanned in by the HomeKit QR code scanner, uh, and you use that to send it to the home hub Uh, However you communicate to the home hub, this is foreshadowing. Uh, (laughs) Then once that passes, uh, you get the fetch room request response, which is using the rooms method. And this is where you get the list of rooms in the home that was selected. And then the user is prompted for a device name. And then uh, once the device name is chosen, you send off a configure accessory request and response with the configure accessory method of your extension. So that pairs your device to 
this third-party hub, which is great. I mean, you can't do that in HomeKit right now. If all of that succeeds, the user is also prompted for if they want to add the device to Apple Home, which sort of starts ringing some weird alarm bells because, like, why would I not want it in Apple Home if I would pair my device through Apple Home with this third-party hub? And I, I will expand on these confusion points a little bit later. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, but there's another like good piece of news about uh, this uh, other smart home hub support, which is that Matter accessories can, by definition, as part of the spec, be paired to multiple home hubs at once. So, huh. yeah. So if something goes horribly wrong with how they implement this protocol in practice, you can just buy all the hubs and paired all the hubs and it will probably work at the end. Um, so if you go to the home app uh, in iOS 15, uh, and you uh, press on a matter accessory, there is a connected services list, and that lists all of the hubs that are paired to a specific matter accessory. And I believe you can unpair them, unpair them as uh, from there as well. You can also trigger pairing mode so that uh, that accessory becomes visible to any other hubs that you are trying to pair it to. So this warning bells aside, it seems like pretty nice bonus of matter that I was not aware of before watching this session, and I'm really happy that I learned about this. I'll give my thoughts on this a little bit uh, later. First, I just want to talk about uh, the matter protocol itself because they touched on it very briefly. Um, this is basically like the section of the session where they were, hey, it's basically HAP. If you know how HAP works, we just renamed all of the names of the th what the things are called, but it's basically HAP. Uh, so... Uh, what was previously known as HAP uh, device capability types are known as endpoints. So this is like uh, if you have an accessory, which is a light, uh, it has a light endpoint. If you have a outlet, it has an outlet endpoint. If you have a combination light and outlet for some reason, uh, it will have both endpoints that are addressable on the same device. So it's basically like functionality sets that are known uh to exist in various device types. So those are called endpoints. Each endpoint can have a number of clusters. So if we're talking about the light endpoint, uh, the clusters would be brightness, color, power. Um, and then again, uh, these are equivalent to what HomeKit uh, or HAP, sorry, calls services. Uh, so again, one-to-one -one match here. Uh, then these have attributes, which were previously known as characteristics, uh, which are uh, sub-values of these clusters. Uh, in terms of brightness, like brightness is the brightness value, so it's not particularly interesting. But let's say color, if you had a red, green, and blue value to tr make an RGB color, uh, that could be attributes. Um, so th those are attributes. And then on those attributes, you have subdivisions again. You have actions, which are, do I want to read the data? Do I want to write the data? Or do I want to generate a report about historical data, which is also interesting. Um, so all of that is like directly the matter protocol that takes place between the home hub and the uh, accessories. All of the matter protocol development is done completely in the open on GitHub. Uh, there is going to be a link in the show notes to the chip.framework uh, code base. So you can go look at it. Uh, it's done completely in the open and there are participants of all of these companies are working on that in public. And, uh, Basically, the framework is going to be distributed with iOS, so you don't need to worry about including it in your app. Uh, you're just going to have whatever is available on the system uh, at the moment that it's running on the device. 
So in terms of content for this session, that's pretty much it. Um, of the three sessions I watched, this was the most interesting. I think it's really rare that a WWDC session that you watch leaves you with a feeling of where an entire segment of the tech industry is headed. You don't get that a lot. Usually you only know where Apple is headed, but now you sort of have a vision into where the entire smart home industry is headed, which is weird. Uh, but also kind of nice. Uh, you feel like yeah, you're reassuring this- too. Yeah, you sort of feel like you you accidentally walked into a conference room that you weren't supposed to and just attended like the <laughs> meeting that you weren't supposed to. It, it's kind of a cool vibe. I like it. I would like more stuff like this at WWDC. Um, so yeah, I, I think matter is a step in the right direction, but there, there are a little couple things that worry me about it. Uh, so b- before I go into those worries, I do want to stress that I did very little research outside of just watching the session. So it's entirely possible that I'm missing critical information that could turn everything I'm about to say upside down. So please take it with a grain of salt. Um, But given the information that I have in this session, matter as a protocol only seems to do two very specific things. And that's sort of where the problem is. It provides a pairing mechanism between an accessory and a home hub that can be aided by an intermediary device, which is a phone. And it allows the control of the accessory from the home hub. But that's where it stops. It doesn't actually do anything else. And the thing that sort of threw me off about this is why do you need app extensions to talk to the home hub? And it it made sense the more I thought about it. There's no spec for the phone to talk directly to the home hub. If Matter defined a spec for that, the phone should just be able to talk to the home hub directly. You don't need the extension. But there is no spec. Because that's not in the scope for matter. Once you realize that, you have a lot of questions about how this multi-hub thing works. Um, when I talked about the pairing process with the third-party hub earlier, I said you would be asked if you want to add it to Apple Home. But what exactly does that mean? D- does it mean that HomeKit has a way to talk to chip devices through third-party hubs? Because it doesn't seem like that. Otherwise, the uh, extension wouldn't need to exist. Or does that mean that it also pairs your chip devices to your Apple Home Hubs if you have them? And if you don't have an Apple Home Hub at home, does that mean that those devices are completely inaccessible to you if you're outside your home with your phone? Even though you have a perfectly capable third-party hub at home, if you can't talk to it, it's not going to do anything for you. And if we take a look uh, from the opposite uh, perspective, let's say I'm an Android user. If a HomePod is a Matter hub and the Google Home app is able to pair Matter accessories with third-party hubs, does that mean Apple needs to write an app extension for Android to pair devices with it? I don't have an answer to that because I didn't watch the Google I.O. session about Matter if there was one. I'm not even sure there was one. Um, So... That's the issue I have with this. And unfortunately, I think like because they sort of assume certain familiarity with the protocol, none of that is communicated within the session. Um, But my understanding of Matter is that it is a completely interoperable standard that is limited to the interactions between accessories and hubs. And as soon as you start talking about interoperability of anything beyond that line you're stuck in a form of proprietary mess. (laughs) And I mean, it it kind of reduces the headache of platform lock-in because now if you switch platforms and something breaks, 
the likelihood that you only need to buy a matter hub is much, much higher than it was previously when you probably needed to buy a new hub and new accessories because accessories weren't compatible with all the hubs. So that is where my worries with matter are right now. And I will try to do more research uh, throughout the summer to try to understand this better because right now I just don't have enough information to go any further than this. And I really hope I'm wrong because that would mean it, the pro- the protocol is much better than I think. But right now, it just looks like a small part of a big, big puzzle that needs to be solved. Hmm, right, that the kind of uh, cross... I was about to say cross-platform support, but uh, cross-platform compatibility is kind of halfway there because it's, as you said, it's the accessory to the own bridge, but not the remainder. And yeah. there's a lot in the remainder. You're making me quite curious too, by the way, about all those questions and even this session. So I think I'll bump. It's on my list of to watch, but I think I need to bump its priority to watch it like ASAP. It's definitely one of the better WWDC sessions I've seen in the past few years. Good. My last session for today is session uh, 10,181 Ultimate Application Performance Survival Guide. So... That's a session? I didn't even see that. (laughs) It is a session. Um, And I have a note about the session itself because I was really... uh, I was really excited about the content and in the end... Yeah, I want to go through the content and then I'll go with that. So as app performance is key to great mobile app experience and to make sure that it does not deteriorate over time, you as an app developer need to monitor performance metric to ensure a consistent performance application. Nobody likes an app that slows down when scrolling, for example. Especially you, not uh, me. <laughs> especially not Yannick, for sure. But even me too. Like, especially like you want to provide the best performance and the best experience to your user. And the goal of that session was to go through all the tools that Apple provides you to figure that out. So you'll see that there's a common theme for all the key metrics we'll be discussing because they all encompass ways that you can get more data or even debug issues with five tools. The Xcode Organizer, the recently introduced uh, Metric Kit Framework as we, that we discussed in episode 152, iOS 13 Deployment Target, Instruments, XE Test, and the App Store Connect API. They say five they should save four because in theory, the App Store Connect API and the Xcode Organizer, to me, they're the same thing. They provide the yeah. same data. And they're, I think now the Xcode Organizer is even written in such a way that it doesn't use private APIs, but it uses the App Store Connect public APIs. So the, uh, the four, I forgot to write the account, but the metrics we'll be looking at during this session is uh, battery usage, launch time, ang rate, memory usage, disk write, scrolling performance, and termination. So for all of these, um, during the session, they went through what you can do to improve your app. Uh, And it's funny because I was writing my notes and my summary, and I was like, yeah, there's a lot of repetition. First, you can debug it using the Xcode debuggers navigator to look at the gauche while running. So a couple of things interesting regarding um, the battery usage because 
there is an Im energy impact gauge and in it it tells you two metrics so cpu i utilization and cpu wake overhead and throughout this session one thing i've realized i don't know where some of those thresholds are documented but they brought up a lot of thresholds about let's say memory consumption and things like that let's say here cpu i use utilization means when you use more than 20 percent like when cpu's cpu usage has more than 20 percent for example so it, it was interesting because they were giving you some key metrics and i'll go through some of them when we go from one category one key metrics to the other but for sure, with uh, for the battery usage key metric, they were talking to you about how you can use the gauge in uh, the gauge the gauges. My goodness, gauge. Uh, thank you, gauge. I, I wrote it, and uh, I knew I wrote it. I'll fuck this word up for sure. I always uh, struggle with that one. But uh, you can go into the debug navigator, look all of the gauges, including the energy impact. You also have the raw CPU usage, the raw memory usage. But for sure, for battery usage, we fo they focused on the energy impact one. Also, when you figure out a solution to your problem, that's where uh, XCTest comes into play because you can write a unit test or a performance test or a UI test to make sure that you don't uh, have a regression later on. For battery users, that doesn't apply, but for the other metrics, it does. Again, they've talked in great length about metric kit, where metric kit can give you access to a lot of that information in your app process so that you can store that on your own server or you can even process that or attach that to debug logs when a customer has an issue. For sure, all of this is based on Apple's user consent, meaning that to get data from the Xcode uh, organizer and in App Store Connect, remember when you configure your phone, it always asks you, I want to share I want to share analytics with Apple. I want to share analytics with developer. So if you want to see your own stats, you need to make sure your users allow you to share their analytics with you. So for that's mainly it for battery usage. They also talk about the battery wall of shame, which is the battery usage settings, pa settings page. And they really more or less said, you don't want to be shamed. They didn't say that, but the, they, they said they want you, you don't want to be there. You won't want to be the first one. So you need to make sure that you audit your app. And that's what I started to realize that it, it was less a session about ways to f improve this, but more like, <laughs> oh, if you want to know more about battery usage improvements, go see this session. So yes, uh, we went through a journey with like, and we'll continue with that, but it was really high level what uh, Xcode organizer, what instrument, what uh, metric kit can give you and what XITX can give you to help you get better performance and not create regression over time but to get the proper techniques and all that fun stuff you have a dedication maybe 20 to 20 25 minute session on battery consumption you also have another session about angrate and scrolling and things like that uh, now that we switch to Angrate, a couple of key metrics that I really enjoyed that they mentioned. Uh, what Apple defines as an Ang is when your app is not responsive for more than 200 milliseconds. Um, I don't know where there was documentation for that, but it was mentioned there, so I took a note of it. Uh, 
in the Xcode organizer, uh, the uh, app unresponsive and time are defined into three categories. So good, fair, and poor. And uh, good means uh, itches that are less than five milliseconds under a second. So all of those categories mean like under a second of your app running, how much of that time is spent anged. So Good is five, less than five milliseconds. Fair is five then uh, between five and ten milliseconds, and then poor is ten milliseconds over a second. Your R N. For sure, they also talk about the thread state and the system call trace templates and instrument, uh, and that's where they start to talk also about uh, XITES. So, from a couple of years ago, uh, XITES has exposed a major call. So that you can say like, okay, you run this test multiple times and you calculate how long does it take. And then you make sure to store that with your test bundle so that next time I run it, you compare it with the previous recorded values. Uh, and they've talked about the different metrics for all of these categories. Uh, so for example, for angry rate and scrolling, it is XCTOS signpost metrics called deceleration metric. So you can use that and then make sure that you fake the scroll using your automation, not fake, but you trigger the scroll using your automation. And if let's say your table view with the latest UI change takes more time to render and then start jitter and install to bug down, then you do have a UI test that is catching up this regression. That would be a good like April Fool's Digital Foundry thing. They should do frame rate graphs of scrolling in UI apps. <laughs> that that would be quite funny. Uh, one thing they mentioned, uh, I don't know what they mentioned, especially with Angrate, but it's regarding metric kit is a big change under iOS 15 is a lot of the diagnostic payload object are now instantly delivered. So let's say there's a CPU usage, uh, ex not exception, but problem that is strong. Usually you would receive all of them or all those different diagnostic over a 24 period interval. So you wait 24 hours, then the OS will notify your app with all the different payloads object. Now it's instantly delivered to your app after uh, the problem occurs. So you can chug through them more frequently and not have a big chunk every 24 hours. So iOS 14 and below will stay this way. iOS 15 and macOS 12 and up as instant delivery of diagnostic objects. And the one thing that made me laugh a lot in the disk writes section is they really start by saying too much disk writes leads to a premature wear of your NAND chips on your SSD. And I'm like... <laughs> Did he have like? Didn't Apple had a problem? Like you know, people were freaking out about the 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 disk writes on their laptop yep. that it was already. I was like, it was funny that they were blatant about this. While I was like, yeah, maybe you need to tell that to yourself too. But uh, I digress. I digress. Didn't for it this. come out though that it was the tool that was measuring that was wrong? Uh, that is a good question. I forgot I, I what I came out of that this. Sometime in the last few weeks, that they they found out that actually your SSD is fine. It's just the tool that's reporting how many disk writes <laughs> there are is wrong. I'll try to find I, a link and put it in the show notes. I guess it's the same tool that also reports the free storage space on your SSD. That is also a lot wrong. No, that's just CPFS. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, okay. Uh, one thing that Apple has mentioned is a couple of tricks to be a good citizen of the system in, in regards to rights is you limit the number of rights you do. 
if you have to do a lot, please batch them into a bunch of write operation. Just don't do like frequent uh, operations. If you need to do frequent writes because your data change frequently, use core data. And that may be like, like, yeah, it makes sense. Don't write a plist like 10,000 times every second. Just use core data. This is SQLite database. It can handle this. And last but not least, avoid file creation and deletion rapidly or in a short amount of time. Um, again, goes back to batching all your operations and just writing data to then delete it. Keep it in the RAM. That's why it exists. Uh, one thing about the Xcode organizer is you'll have a, a specific disk write reports that closely resemble a crash uh, a crash stack trace because it's also stack trace, but it is for events when your app writes more than one gig per day of data. Uh, so when that happens, Apple will trigger um, a disk write report showing you the, the stack trace that wrote a lot. And again, you go in Xcode Organizer and you can watch it open your Xcode project directly in the code, in a code path, because it's, it is symbolized the same way a crash report is or needs to be. Next up is launch times and termination because those two are closely related. Uh, and even in the next one after, because if you do too much, the OS kills you more or less. Uh, compared to, let's say, again, ang rate too. If you ang for too long, the OS will kill you. But compared to this, right? If you write too, too much SSD, like the OS doesn't uh, block you too much. Same thing with battery usage. If you burn the battery a lot, but it's not because you run the CPU through the roof, you won't get terminated. So lunchtime is really when you first tap the, the user taps on the icon and then till the point the first frame is getting rendered by your application. So more or less, it means when the launch screen is presented by the OS. So if you, and I know that it is documented, but they did not, they did not mention what was the threshold uh, compared to other thresholds I mentioned today for that session. Uh, but one thing that was interesting, because I think it closely resembled the OS threshold, is that if you use the instrument app launch template, this template would run your app for five seconds to gather how long does it take to boot up. And I would have assumed that if it takes more than five seconds, Instagram would be like, yeah, it's too long. <laughs> uh, so again, not giving an exact an exact number for the threshold, but they didn't mention that the instrument app launch template only runs for five seconds. I think it's still five seconds on device though. I, I wouldn't be surprised that that kind of like made sense if you see what I mean. Uh, but I wasn't sure if it was still five seconds or if it used five, to be seconds. five seconds. Yeah. Okay. Then I guess that's why the uh, the the app launch template and instrument does run your app for five seconds because that's the main number. But they didn't say like that's the threshold. If mm. you see what I mean, uh, that the OS expect. And I'm really surprised. Like we know Apple. That's that's one thing I liked is for some threshold they were really pretty open. And usually Apple is not really open with a threshold because they love to change it. Yep. On the OS versions. Multitasking users know this very well. <laughs> yes. And it's funny you mentioned multitasking because, uh, again, in Xcode Organizer, um, you get you can get two things. So you can get your launch time, your time to first launch, excuse me, in milliseconds. But you can also get new termination matrix that that is new in Xcode 13. When it can give you the number of terminations per day and their type. 
and their types there's i'd say there's two types and then there's a couple of categories per type so the two types or when you're frontmost or you're in the background and the categories when you're frontmost is if you have an abort if you have an illegal instruction uh, instruction if you, again your app times out or they have a category called others for when you're in the background you have again app timeout you also have tasks timeout you have system pressure, which we'll see in a bit because you'll see why the system pressure exists. And then you also, again, you have others. So th this is something that is new in Xcode 13 uh, as organizer. And in related to that, um, they also showed that uh, when you look at those reports, new in Xcode 13, there are insights. And those insights, even for this strike, it might give you a... It, the the reason you're doing that is maybe because you are doing X in your code base and you should do Y. I think they were saying that uh, for one of the disk writes, they were saying that uh, they were, you were using the wrong flag on your SQLite file because I recall it was like, oh, use WAL as a, an option. It's like, oh yeah, that reminds me of configuration. Uh, but for termination launch time, they also have different uh, insights. Another new insight that is uh, going to be part of Xcode 13 is any regressions in your key matrix that we are going through uh, will be more permanently shown. Right now, if you go in the Xcode organizer, you can more or less need to go on the oh ang rate and I look at all my versions where I have data. Oh yeah, I see that I'm trending upwards. My trend is upward. I have uh, more times uh, per second where my app gets ang but now there's going to be a new section only dedicated to regression and it will tell you okay your 1.0 versus your 2.0 there is like a regression in disk writes and launch time and then you can act accordingly next up and last but not least uh memory so again uh if your uh if your app uses too much memory it will get terminated uh, and this is really compounded with slow launch time because when that happens, so if you use too much memory or, for example, if you use too much CPU, uh, your app gets terminated by the OS. And if it's also slow to boot up, it might get killed again and it might be stuck into a termination loop because you use too much memory, you, your launch time is a bit too long. So Maybe before your app was okay, but now because of that condition, your user won't be able to launch your app. And it's funny because when they were demoing what you can do in Instrument, they were talking about the leaks allocation and the uh, virtual memory tracker. And the allocation one for me is one of the gauges that is super useful in the day-to-day -day life of an iOS developer yeah. because it tells you like this class was instant, it was allocated like two times and it's already like there's two live instances uh in a live and it's like if your data model makes sense that you should have only one class now you know that you possibly have a retain cycle somewhere so uh that is quite useful to find um retain cycles and stuff like that so overall while the session seemed interesting and i think it still is uh the it was literally a stepping stone for other session it, it was a typical Without being called what's new in app performance, it was a typical what's new in app performance. Yeah. So uh, that left me uh, a bit on my appetite. I was really re wishing to kind of get more. It was a good refresher of what uh, the Xcode organizer offers. 
and um, XC tool and um, the uh, signpost API and uh, metric kit because compared to some previous session about metric kit where they tell you how you get notified and how you configure your app to use metric kit they really focus on the signpost aspect where you can annotate your code base to say okay i'm about to go scroll here so create a signpost so that when i get my payload i know that oh i was starting to scroll then i get ang uh diagnostic and then my scroll stop and then everything memory is back to normal and scrolling performance is back to normal so throughout all of those key metrics that i mentioned they were always giving you an uh, an example where or for most of them an example where you can write an xc test to ensure you don't ship a new regression for this and that also uh, to get more diagnostic data from your live customers in the wild you can also expose it through metric kit so those were good reminders for those two aspects that personally I've seen uh, is sometimes developers tend to forget to do that same thing with instruments. We tend to, oh, we write our feature, we're happy to ship it to customers or we have a bit pressure for the business to ship it to customer. Oh crap, we forgot to go run through instruments. So overall for this, for the eye level, if you know this concept already, that was the plus of that session. But um it had the downside of like kind of exploding a bit, meaning that, oh, this session is not in my watch list. Let me bookmark it and add yeah. it to my watch list. Uh, but most of the session mentioned for 2021, because again, the, this is also the stepping stone for previous year's sessions. Uh, so ignoring those, uh, most of them were already in my watch list. So that's it for ultimate application performance survival guide cool let's get to my third session which is adding rich graphics with swift ui this is probably the Ooh. most mainstream session so far yeah i think this year we've been good at having really like off the beaten path uh sessions yeah but i i thought since i bitched about swift ui recently i should probably try and check a session that might tried to correct some of the issues that I mentioned. Uh, so I chose this one. Uh, this session is actually kind of interesting in terms of its premise. It's very different from other Doge sessions I've watched, mainly because instead of having like this outlined tour of various features, they start with the premise that there's a demo application, which is a gradient generator. And then they they basically say, like, this application is fully functional right now, but we want to make it more polished over the course of this session. And then they basically, instead of going it through, uh, going through feature by feature, they go through screen by screen. Uh, oh, nice. Which is interesting, except it makes trying to explain related complex uh, concepts without the illustrative help of the screenshots of the screens that you're editing mm. a little bit harder for the purposes of this episode. Uh, so I've... I've had a little bit of freedom to try and rearrange stuff around and I've cut out some stuff about like the specifics because without the visual aid, it's kind of hard to uh, do some stuff. And unfortunately it starts with kind of the worst thing. Um, but to give you a basic idea of like what this uh, app is, uh, it's an app to create gradients. There is a list of gradients. Uh, if you tap on a gradient, you go to the gradient detail screen, which is literally just showing you the gradient and the name, which is not great. And then there's a gradient editor, which lets you actually change the colors and the stops in the gradient. And then there's visualizers, which is sort of like the big 
big payoff of this app, which is a bunch of different animated shapes uh, that are drawn in the gradients that were created in the app. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, so it's it's a little bit of everything. Uh, they have an interactive control in there. They have basic uh, view uh, control in there, and then they have like animations and stuff. Uh, they start off by saying, yeah, the gradient detail, it kind of looks goofy. It just has this tiny square at the middle of the screen that's 200 pixels by 200 pixels showing you the gradient that you created. Uh, maybe it would be nice to have it fill the entire screen. So they start off by saying, okay, well, let's just delete the frame on the gradient view. Pretty basic. It fills out more of the screen. Then they're like, oh, we have these controls under the, the gradient view uh, because they're in the vertical stack. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the vertical stack and we're going to convert it to a Z stack, uh, which overlaps the gradient, uh, the controls on top of the gradient to save even more space. Um, and then they show you how to dock that at the bottom with the alignment uh, property and stuff like that. Uh, and then they're like, oh, and if I shuffle around, which views get the padding, it can stretch out even more. And basically they get to a point where like a lot of the top of, top three quarters of the screen is filled out by uh, this gradient that they created, which is really cool, except they're like, but there's all this unused space near the bottom of the screen. And that's because <laughs> by default, SwiftUI places views in the safe area. Uh, and these Ooh. are these are inset regions that exclude uh, zones where your content would be obscured. Uh, and like by default, these are like... Uh, the safe region area doesn't go under nav bars. Uh, the home indicator at the bottom of an iPhone 10 or later device, for example, is also uh, a part of the safe area. So you don't, you just end up with like a white rectangle. If you have this, uh, this gradient view that goes right up to the home indicator and you've got a couple other things like that. Uh, there are actually two different safe areas. There's the container safe area and the keyboard safe area. Uh, the, the distinction being the keyboard safe area is the safe area when the keyboard is up and it is a subset of the container safe area. So what they're saying is you can opt out of safe areas. Uh, most cases, you probably want to stay within the safe area because it is safe. And especially if you have interactive uh, controls and stuff like that, you don't want them to be outside of the safe area because they could be obscured by uh, either the curves of the display, which I did not actually think of until I actually saw the curves of like the modern displays on the on the screen, or stuff like it would be under the home indicator or stuff like that. So you want to avoid it for interactive stuff, uh, but you can opt out if you want to by using the ignore safe area uh, method on uh, SwiftUI views. It also takes an enum argument, which lets you. Uh, specify if you have a specific safe area you want to opt out from. So if there's something that is uh, you want to opt out from the uh, from the keyboard safe area for some reason, but not the container safe area, you can specify that one uh, by passing it in. You can also uh, specify an edges uh, argument that says, oh, well, I only want to opt out from the safe area on the bottom of the screen so that I stretch to the uh, to under the home indicator, but I don't necessarily want to stretch under the navigation bar on the top. Uh, so you can give it an edge to do that. Uh, the other thing is that the background method on views on iOS 15 and aligned releases, this is a word that I, a phrasing I learned at this WWDC. Uh, instead of saying iOS 15, iPad, OS 15, tvOS 15, macOS 12, all that shit. They just say iOS 15 and aligned re releases, which I like. It's a good wording. Hmm. 
So the background method on those versions of the OSs is now also aware of your view's adherence to safe zones, and it can do smarter things in function of that. Uh, so for example, like if you're uh, not excluding uh, the safe zone, uh, you're not opting, opting out of the safe zone, and you put a uh, background on something that is docked on the bottom of the screen, technically it is not docked to the very bottom of the screen, but it will stretch the background because it knows that it is the most bottom thing on the screen and therefore you probably want it to extend under the safe zone. Then they talked about background materials. So this, I believe there was something like this before, but I don't know if it was in Swift UI. Uh, background materials are basically just something, a style you can pass to the background method on views. They vary from ultra thin to ultra thick, and they are the standard iOS 7 translucent blur effect that we were talking about earlier uh, that reduces transparencies if you go into the accessibility settings. Uh, you can use any of these materials as a standard background style, and it will uh, match whatever is provided by the OS for that style. Uh, and this plays along with foreground styles. So if you have text uh, and you set the foreground style to secondary, tertiary, or quaternary, uh, it will automatically apply vibrancy to the text color uh, atop a background material that is translucent or in sidebars, which also technically already have a material applied to them. Um, foreground styles also automatically do the right thing in all, the, uh, in all contexts. So for example, uh, if you set a color on that text, uh, it will match the color effect to the color of that text. And if you uh, give it a static background, it won't apply vibrancy, but it will uh, apply color effects on the color so that it has the level of em emphasis that it should for a secondary or tertiary or quaternary or whatever. Also, since text can technically have different colors at different substrings of the text, your entire string will have to share one foreground style, but the text effects will be the appropriate ones for each range of that text. And also now you can put emoji in these things with foreground styles and they won't break because apparently that happened before. Ooh. Yeah. Um, because like if you do weird transparency effects on emoji, it doesn't look right compared to actual text, right? So now they fixed that and I believe emoji just render normally everywhere now. So sometimes you have a need to customize safe areas. So what they had in the uh, example app is they had the scrollable list of colors and then they had a uh, control at the bottom of the screen and they were in a Z stack. And the problem is that the uh, controls at the bottom of the screen were hiding like three quarters of the bottom element of the list, which I believe is something that everyone goes through through iOS development. It happens at least once because all of the inset shit happens every, uh, changes every couple of years anyway. <laughs> so, and uh, so basically, like, they, they were showing the way that you can fix this in Swift UI with the safe area inset method. Uh, so you can just uh, tell it what edge you want to inset things on and then pass in a block of all of the controls that should be in the inset zone. So you would put in your uh, bottom controls bar, for example, that would be uh, outside the inset thing. And then uh, it will be the inset for the safe area zone. So you can still see if that view is transparent or translucent, sorry. You can see the background uh, table view behind it, um, but it is not interfering with uh, the, the interactive elements of that table view, if that makes sense. Then they were sort of done with all of the basic views of the app that they basically said let's go talk about visualizations because that's the shit you're here for anyway uh 
and I, I would have to agree. So this is something I was not fully aware of, but I learned during the session. Uh, previously, you could put a modifier on a view called drawing group. Did you know about this? Uh, nope. Okay, so it's really interesting. Uh, I didn't know this was a thing. So if you put the mo- the drawing group modifier on a view, it completely changes how that view is rendered. Uh, normally, views in iOS are rendered with core animation. If you choose drawing group, it turns it into a single metal layer. Oh, yeah. No, okay. Now, now I recall this because there was a great Swift UI demo about that last year uh was it last year or the year it got launched i forgot but i recall that the i recall the one-liner oh you do this and then it switched to metal yeah suddenly it works super fast um so yeah they, they pitched this as being like a higher performance uh solution for a bunch of different types of applications specifically if you have a lot 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 of images that you want to render at once uh, and with animations or stuff like that, you probably want to use Drawing Group because it greatly reduces the amount of compositing work that the uh, platform needs to do, uh, which is great. Uh, they also say don't use it for everything because uh, there are higher fixed costs to setting up a metal context than there are for uh, core animation views, and you should only really use it if you actually need it uh, instead of just attacking it on the whole app and be like, you're a metal app now. Uh you put it everywhere and it just works. Exactly. Um, remember the good old days when we used to draw erect every single table cell? Those were the days. Anyway, uh, so uh, nowadays they're adding another option for higher performance, lower overhead drawing in Swift UI, and that is the canvas element. So canvas uh, goes very well with the joke I just made. It is quite similar in concept to implementing draw erect on a UI kit view. Uh, it literally takes a closure and you get past a drawing context and a canvas size and you can just write imperative code in there that draws shit. Uh, it is not a hmm. view builder, so you can use for loops and all of that stuff and it won't explode. It has draw operations very similar to core graphics. However, the draw operations are super cool because they support all of the same foreground styles that are accepted by uh, regular Swift UI views. So a lot more of your knowledge from Swift UI uh, appearance customization applies to graphics code, which is real cool. Uh, context properties. So um, if you've done core graphics stuff in the past, you know that um, it can be a real pain in the ass to save and restore your contexts and do a bunch of changes and stuff like that. Here you can just change the uh, opacity or blend mode or whatever that you want to draw to directly on the context and it will apply to all subsequent graphics operations. But there's an even cooler thing. You can copy the context and change the uh, properties on the copy of the context and only call uh, that copy context when you want to draw stuff with those custom options and it will just do the right thing. Uh, so you can have, let's say, a 50% opacity context and a 100% uh, opacity context. And instead of switching back and forth between the different modes constantly, depending on your uh, Z indexes and all of that stuff of the things you want to draw, you can just call them with the right context and it will just do the right thing, which is a great shortcut for a lot of people who are doing a lot of complex drawing, um, which is great. Uh, the caveat though, is that unlike a uh, drawing group, which is for fully interactive Swift UI views, which again, it kind of, it's kind of mind blowing that that even works. Uh, 
these are just images and shapes and text and not actually views that you are drawing. So you can't do interactive things with them to the same level of granularity that you can with a drawing group. Uh, the canvas as a whole is an interactive uh, element for user feedback, but the individual things that are drawn within the canvas are not. Okay, next thing is animations. This is maybe where I'm supposed to get hyped. Um, <laughs> so they said Swift UI animations until now have been fairly bare bones. Uh, so kind of like what I said on the episode, you can sort of say, oh, well, I want this kind of animation and it will automatically apply to your view when uh, its properties would change. But uh, it would happen automatically without your involvement, and it had very limited customizability, which is to say it didn't really have any. Um, iOS 15 and aligned releases introduce Timeline View, which is a lower-level tool for exact control of changing values over time. Um, hmm. And this is a thing you wrap a view, uh, wrap around a view. And uh, basically the view whose properties you want to control in function of the timeline view. And uh, the timeline view, you can say, I want to sign up to a specific schedule. Uh, so you can say every minute, every uh, every second or stuff like that. Or you can just specify uh, animation, which is equivalent to CA display link, which will just run at the frame rate of the display, uh, which is great. And timeline view is going to give you a timeline context which contains a bunch of information about uh, time passing and all of that stuff so that you can use it to make uh, accurate animation calculations within uh, your view code. And that's pretty much it. You can use it within Canvas as well. Uh, so Canvas is not excluded from this. You can just go look up like how much time has elapsed since the last frame and stuff like that to calculate, okay, uh, where should my position of my animation be in function of that it doesn't really eliminate any of the game dev bullshit that i was complaining about in the previous episode it just is a cleaner way of doing the same hacky shit you were doing before uh which i guess is good because now at least that there's a sanctioned way to do it it feels less hacky and you maybe have more confidence that it's not going to explode and break things because it's not compatible with the way Swift UI is supposed to work. This is presumably going to work within the confines of what Swift UI enables and therefore is probably safer and therefore good. But for a framework that is very obsessed with making things declarable, it's just really fucking strange to me that they don't seem interested in declarative animations at all like CSS3, which is what I proposed. So I don't know. It, it, it's interesting to see their uh, their solution to this problem being timeline view because it's it, it feels like a Band-Aid fix, a quick Band-Aid fix, and maybe that's what they need right now and that's what they shipped and that's cool, I, I understand. Uh, but my desire for a better uh, declarative animation framework is still alive and this doesn't really fix anything that i had uh that was wrong with swift ui good is that it yeah good so that concludes all the session summaries we had for you today uh, i hope that again as i said more or less every year that we do this episode is i hope that those types of session and us summarizing them will allow you or even let's say force you to kind of like be more curious about what's outside the beaten path. Um, so if you're an iOS developer working in the same type of app and you haven't worked on a map app or even work on, I'm not super interested about that, but the, uh, machine learning and all that fun <laughs> stuff, or even like improve your accessibility knowledge 
by building better chart or getting to know more about Swift UI itself, please allocate maybe some of your time that you want to allocate to Dubdub to those outside outside of like outside of your normal sphere uh, session because you might learn something interesting or you might learn that a session should have been the documentation page. <laughs> uh, but hopefully that won't be the case uh, for all those sessions of the beaten path, but more, it is a nice surprise that you've learned. And that's what we try to convey with this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. And Nainik, let's wrap it up. All right. So you can find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 164. You can find all of our previous episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find us individually on Twitter. I am at Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Nicodivie at Lucanoche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.